be reading verses 19 through 24 of Matthew 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And you may be seated. Quite some time back, when I began preaching this series on the Sermon on the Mount, I told you that I'm doing so with trepidation. The Sermon on the Mount is not an eye-catching, glossy advertisement with shining pictures and glowing testimonials. It's not a matter of people inviting people to come on in and enjoy the party. This sermon portrays a life of sacrifice, surrender, and dependence. And this sermon calls for the disciples of Christ to live a Spartan life, a life in which you are willing to sacrifice now with an eye for the future, for what lies ahead. A life in which you're willing to give up anything for the end cause. But being the people we are, we do not like being made uncomfortable. We do not enjoy when the alarm clock rings. We do not like wake-up calls. We look for ways to downplay that which makes us uncomfortable. But the Sermon on the Mount, if accepted for what it is, tends to make us uncomfortable at times. I also asked you when I began this series, what if each of the members of this church would say, I am willing to give everything I have, no matter what? What if we would take this entire sermon at face value and apply it wholeheartedly to our lives, no matter the personal cost? And what if we would stand up and say, count me in? So far in chapter 6, we've looked at a number of topics, a number of issues, a number of subjects. We looked at the subject of giving, of praying, of forgiving, and fasting. And now as we come to verse 16, it seems like we're kind of turning a corner a bit. The subject appears to change as we look specifically at the focus of our life here on earth. And several questions that come to us as we look at these verses that we, uh, we just read here. What do we see as being essential? How do we see the essential? And who is essential in our lives? These are some questions we'd like to address and um, perhaps attempt to answer them, but sometimes maybe I cannot answer those questions for you, but as we look at them together, hopefully you will be able to answer them for yourself. The title of the message is, I Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. And of course, I had this message in my mind throughout the morning this morning, and I felt like numerous aspects of the service were leading up to it. Uh, the devotional message, uh, Joseph read from Colossians 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Uh, that's really a summary of what this passage is about, setting our affection on things that are above. So as we look at the first three verses, verses 19, 20, and 21, the question that I think these verses are addressing, the question that these verses is addressing is, what do we see as essential? What is important to you? And verse 19 talks about treasures on earth. Do we see the treasures on earth as something that is important? Now, I think it's pretty easy to understand what treasures on earth are. We recognize that as being wealth and possessions, 
money and material goods. There are things that can be stolen. There are things that, can, that will someday rust or rot or be ruined. And Jesus is not necessarily saying that these things are wrong, but what he is addressing is if we are setting our affection on those things, if we, are, are, if we see these as the essential things in life to, to focus our attention on. And he says we should not lay them up for ourselves. Now, it might be fairly easy to understand what earthly treasures are, but this question of when are we actually laying them up, that's a little bit harder question to answer. Now, we have been taught that it is good to plan ahead. We've been taught that in our upbringing. Uh, the Bible teaches in numerous cases that it's good to plan ahead. We're taught that we should prepare for the winter. We agree that a freezer full of provisions for the fall is good. But we would probably also agree that if we try to put five years' worth of food in our freezer, that may be a little bit foolish. We're laying up a bit too much. So there seems to be a balance here. Most of us would agree that a freezer full of vegetables and hamburger and roasts and maybe a little bit of ice cream is good. But if we have a freezer full of filet mignon, maybe that's not necessary. Maybe that's laying up something that's beyond what is necessary. When it comes to money and other possessions, this question gets maybe a little bit fuzzy for us. So who can say that if we have $10,000 in the bank, we're wise, but if we have $100,000 in the bank, we're foolish? Or who can say if we have 100000 in the bank, we're wise, but if we have a million, we're foolish? Or if we have a million in the bank, we're wise, if we have $10 million, we're foolish? This is a little bit harder to determine. It's hard because if some people would have $10,000 in the bank, they would feel exorbitantly rich. Other people, if they would have only $10,000 in the bank, they would feel pathetically poor. So our goal this morning is not necessarily to look at numbers and figures, but at principles. So how can we tell when we are laying up treasures? I think the Bible does give some indications to those questions. When are we laying up treasures? One way we can tell if we're laying up treasures is when we can never be content with what we have. We're just always wanting to acquire more. I have a number of verses and I'm projecting them here because of looking at a number of verses. If you're taking notes, I'm not necessarily intending you to write all these verses down, but I'm projecting him, them here for you to read. Philippians chapter four, Paul gives his testimony. He says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And in verse 11, he says, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He realized that circumstances vary in life. Sometimes they're better. Sometimes they're more difficult. But in all these circumstances, we need to express a contentment. And if we can never find that contentment, it may be an indication that our desire is to lay up more and more on earth. Some more verses. Hebrews 13, 5, let your conversation or your lifestyle be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 8, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out in having food and raiment. Let us therewith be content. So when are we laying up treasures? Perhaps one indication is when we can never be content with what we have. I once heard of a man who uh, was buying, had bought a number of properties uh, over the years. And someone asked him the question. He says, well, what do you want to do? Buy the whole county? Is that what your desire is? And this man's response was, I don't want the whole county. All that I want is the property that adjoins my property. And you can understand how that, that never ends. And furthermore, it snowballs. I just did a little bit of uh, thinking about that question here this week. The 
particular piece of property that I own where we live, there are five properties that adjoin mine. Now, if my goal would be to acquire those five properties, suddenly I would find that there are now 14 properties that adjoin my property. And you can imagine how it snowballs from there. That is what discontentment can do to us. Discontentment can be a debilitating disease because there's no end to it. There's no resolution. It consumes you like cancer. There's just no stopping point. It just goes on and on and on. So we need to enjoy, learn to, we need to learn to enjoy even the things that do not have our name on them. Can we enjoy going to a public park without owning that park? Hopefully we can. Someone has said that contentment is knowing that if I'm not happy with what I have, I will never be happy with what I want because we will always want more. So when we can never be content with what we have, that's one indication of our desire to lay up treasures. Another indication is when our love for acquiring wealth exceeds our love for Christ. And I would maybe expand that a little bit more to say when our love for acquiring wealth and our efforts to obtain wealth exceed our love for Christ and our desire to serve Christ. So which is great, a greater priority in my life, my desire to serve Christ or my desire to acquire this wealth? Continuing on with some uh, more verses from 1 Timothy chapter 6. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now notice these next lines. Which while some coveted after... They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is the love for acquiring wealth. Not saying necessarily that wealth is wrong, but the love for continually acquiring more. And when our acquisitions and our desire to obtain more becomes more important to us than our service to God or more important to us than dedicating our lives to evangelistic efforts, it's a bad Indication. It's a bad sign. Well, one more indication is when we are more concerned about our desires than others' needs. And again, several verses. 1 John 3, verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, from his brother, how dwelleth the love of God in him? This is an indication of our desire to hoard treasures for ourselves when we're unwilling to share, to meet the needs of someone else, when we have the possibility, when we have the means to do so. And another verse in James chapter 2, two verses, verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister be, destitute, be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not to things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So these are some indications that we're laying up treasures on earth. Moving on to verse 20, what about treasures in heaven? What do we see as essential? This is a question we're looking at. Is it the treasures on earth or is it treasures in heaven? Now, it's pretty easy, as I indicated, to understand what treasures on earth are. This may not always be the case for treasures in heaven. It's a little bit harder to visualize. We can't always see or touch them. So just exactly what are treasures in heaven? Well, from our text, from verse 20, we understand that it's referring to things which cannot be taken away by thieves or by rust or by insects. So what are treasures in heaven? Four things that I'd like to point out that are treasures in heaven. Number one, treasures in heaven refers to that which is a sacrificial service to others. Now, I'm not referring just simply to doing something that's a general benefit to others, but sacrificially service to others, giving up something that requires a sacrifice on our part in order to benefit others. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus addresses this issue. He gives the account there where the king, at the end of time, the people are gathered, the nations are gathered before him. 
And the king says to the people that are gathered on his right hand, he says, I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Service to others is a service to God. And service to others will not be forgotten by God. Selflessly serving others is laying up treasure in heaven. And we could go back over this list. There are many opportunities there that I'm sure we could find today to serve others in these ways. So treasures in heaven, number one, is that which is a sacrificial service to others. Number two, it's that which contributes to the glory of God. Going to uh, be reading a number of verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in that passage, Paul talks about all the trials and the difficulties and the troubles he faced. He said, we are troubled, we're perplexed, we are persecuted. But then in verse 15, he, he comes to the point, he says, but this is all for a reason that it may contribute to the glory of God. He's saying some of the difficulties we face here on earth are specifically to bring glory to God. We plan to spend eternity with God. We look forward to that. And living our lives now for the purpose of bringing glory to him is an investment in eternity. Personal glory is short-lived. God's glory is an investment in eternity. So treasures in heaven pertains to that which is sacrificial service to others. It pertains to that which contributes to the glory of God. It also pertains to that which builds the spiritual man. Not necessarily the physical man, the financial man, the emotional man, but the spiritual man. And again, going forward in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, for which cause, okay, he was talking about our desire is to bring glory to God, and he says, for this cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we're looking at that which builds the spiritual man. That which builds spiritual values within us is far more important, Jesus is saying here, than that which builds the bank account or that which builds the investment portfolio or that which builds your real estate empire. That is why our young people go to Bible school when they could use that time to add thousands of dollars to their bank account if they would stay home and work. That is why time spent in VS and missions is far more important than many other things you could choose to do instead. Because these activities build the spiritual man, both in the life of the person who does it, as well in the lives of others that they minister to. And if you would talk to people, and there's a number of them in our church here, who have spent a number of years in service in different, different types of areas, I'm guessing that most of them would tell you they would not trade that experience for any amount of financial opportunity or other opportunities here that they sacrificed. Because the things that they gain through that experience are investments that cannot be taken away, that time cannot destroy. So as we address this question of what do we see as essential, there's this possibility of earthly treasures, there's this possibility of heavenly treasures, which brings us to the question, where is my treasure? I think I missed a point there, getting ahead of myself. Um, that which is eternal is a fourth point. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal values. So where is my treasure? Where is my heart fixed? 
Is my heart fixed on the present? And by the present, I'm referring to this time period in which we're living. It might be the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. Is it fixed on the attractive and the enduring? To help put this in perspective, I'd like to give you perhaps a, a bit of a parable. Jesus often said the kingdom of heaven is likened unto something. And I'd like to liken the kingdom of heaven this morning to a country with a graduated tax scale. Just imagine with me that you lived in this imaginary country where your income tax was payable only at the end of the year. There were no deductions taken out of your paycheck, no deductions at all. At the end of the year, you need to pay all your taxes. And in this country, if you earned $100,000 or more per year, you needed to pay 100% income tax. However, if you earned $30,000 or less, your tax rate is 0%. Now that puts you in a bit of a dilemma. You're offered two jobs. The one pays a salary of $120,000. The other pays a salary of $25,000. Which would you take? This salary of $120,000 is pretty appealing. Just think of all that you could have bought that you could buy during the year when you're earning that salary. In two months' time, you could buy a brand new truck. Pretty loaded. You could buy four-wheelers. You could buy sports equipment. You could buy all kinds of things. But at the end of the year, you would lose every bit of it. It would all need to be paid, turned in to cover your taxes. And perhaps some of the things you spend on things that you can't cash off. You may even need to go to prison until you can pay it. Is that salary appealing? Yes, it is. It is an appealing salary. But would it be foolish to take that job? Absolutely. At the end of the year, you have nothing. Now, the other job you're offered is sacrificial. You're only getting $25,000 for a year's worth of labor. There's so much that you're missing out on that you could be earning with that bigger salary. But this salary is enduring. This salary you will not lose. At the end of the year, you're not losing a single cent of that salary. Is that option sacrificial? Yes, perhaps so. In the immediate range, at least. But what you get, you never lose. So which will you choose? You see, in life, we face that question. Which will you choose? Where is your treasure? Are you going to invest in the eternal? Or are you going to invest in that which you can enjoy for a short time but eventually, it is all gone. I'd like to give you a tale of two careers, just to help put this in perspective. And I'll, I'll use uh, professional sports players as an example. I don't think we have any professional sports players here, so no one's going to think that I'm picking on you particularly. But it's an example of those who invest in the now, who put their focus in the now. You see, these men will one day lose everything that they invest their lives in. They will lose their millions in salaries. They will lose all the earthly applause that they receive. The fact that they threw a piece of inflated leather across a certain line in the grass more frequently than anyone else will mean absolutely nothing when they stand before the king and give account for their lives. There will be no fans cheering for them then, which by the way, fans is simply an abbreviation for fanatics. There will be no fanatics cheering for them then. Their stats will bring no eternal reward. Many of you here will recognize the name Pat Mahomes. He has one of the largest salaries. Last uh, year or two ago, he bought a house 
which is surprisingly cheap considering his salary. He only paid about two million for his house. One of the favorite rooms in that house is a room where he displays his shoe collection because he is obsessed with shoes. In this room, he has special lighting to highlight certain pairs of shoes. He also has security features to make sure they don't get stolen. And when he set up this room, he narrowed down his collection to about 180 pairs. He says, that way I can wear each pair of shoes about two days every year. Not only will every single pair of shoes that he has disappear, but so will the house that they are stored in. So that is one option. We're looking at a tale of two careers. Henry Morrison is a man, we may have heard his story here before. He was a missionary who served the Lord in Africa for about 40 years. He invested his life in mission work. And he was getting up in years, his health was failing, and he and his wife decided to return back to the States. This was years ago, they returned by ship. They were crossing the Atlantic Ocean by ship, and as it turned out, he and his wife were on the same ship as Teddy Roosevelt, who was at that time President of the United States. And when the ship pulled into New York Harbor, there were thousands of people waiting to meet that ship. They were cheering. The bands were playing. There were signs and banners and billboards everywhere saying, welcome home. But they were not there to welcome Henry Morrison. They were there to welcome Theodore Roosevelt. He had been gone for three weeks on a hunting safari in Africa. Well, Henry and his wife found their way to a cheap hotel room to spend the night, and Henry was discouraged. He sat down in the bed in that room. He said to his wife, I said, this just doesn't make sense. He said, for 40 years, we poured out our lives into ministry and service. And we come back to America, and there's not a single person here to welcome us home. This man was gone for three weeks. He killed a couple of animals, and he's given a hero's welcome. His wife came and sat down to bed next to him, put his arm on his shoulder, sat there in silence for a few minutes, and then she said, but Henry, don't forget, we're not home yet. Our homecoming is still ahead of us. So I'd like to imagine the homecoming that awaited Henry and his wife when they did get home. As Jesus was standing there with outstretched arms, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Perhaps scores of Africans there, waiting to meet him and to thank him for investing in their lives, to make it possible that they could be there. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which cannot be taken away. So, which would you rather have? A $2 million house and 180 pairs of shoes? Or a crown of righteousness which cannot be taken away? Let's move on to the next verse, next verses. What do we see as essential? How do we see the essential? How do we see the things that are essential? Jesus talks in verses 22 and 23 about how we see things. In verses 19 to 21, he presents the essential issues, treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven, that which will pass away versus that which will endure, that which is self-centered versus that which is God-centered. These are essential matters. Ultimately, eternally, they're a matter of life or death. Now he moves to the question of how do you see these issues? Can we see them clearly or do we not see them clearly? It all depends on our vision. Jesus says, if thine eye be single. Now this does not, the, the idea here is not having only one eye in your head, but it's the idea of having a singularly focused vision, a clear, sharp, and single vision. The, the idea is a clear spiritual focus. 
And when that is the case, Jesus is saying, your body is full of light. There is understanding. There is perception. And the pathway before you gives you a sense of direction. It's illuminated. You know where you're going. And you know how you're going to get there. This is if thine eye be single. But then he goes on in verse 23, but if thine eye be evil. And the idea here is a bad eye or poor vision. If you're not able to see clearly, it has to do with a blurry or misfocused vision. It has to do with a blurred spiritual focus where you do not have a distinct vision. And when that is the case, there's a sense of darkness and confusion and uncertainty. And Jesus says, how great is that darkness? It's a pretty sad and helpless situation in which to find yourself because the path before you is dark and it's lonely, it's shadowy. You're not sure where to place your next step. You're not sure what lies ahead of you. You don't really know where you're going or how to get there. You feel lost and alone. It's kind of like walking through a maze, blindfolded. I remember one time being at a youth social, and this particular social was held in a barn, and they were serving a meal in the barn. And when you entered the barn, there was a group of the, the youth committee there that was waiting to meet you. And in order to get to the meal, you had to pass through a series of tunnels in the hay mile. In the hay mile. It was the only way to get to where the meal was served. And before you entered the tunnels, the people that were there made sure you had no phone, no flashlight, nothing that would give you any sense of light. The pathway was dark. So I entered the tunnels on my hands and knees. It was pitch black. You had to feel your way. And there were drop-offs, places where they would just drop off ahead of you. Not only that, but there were dead-end tunnels as you went on your way. You just simply got to the end, and there was nowhere to go. And you had to back up. And I distinctly remember backing up from one of these dead ends and meeting someone behind me who was going forward. And this person behind me insisted that everywhere else was a dead end. There was no way out. They had to go forward. Well, I knew there was no way to go forward. I had to go backward. And there was no way to pass each other. The only way through that passageway in the dark was to find an opening at one spot on top of the tunnel. So as you were feeling the sides, there was no way out. You had to find this opening overhead and crawl through that into another area which led to the meal. Can't really say that I enjoyed that experience. For sure it was not a place to be if you're claustrophobic. Uh, you could get pretty uptight pretty quick. But Jesus is indicating here that that is exactly how many people go through life. If they do not have spiritual perception, if they do not have spiritual vision, they can't see where they're going. They're groping. They're struggling through life. Their decisions are based only on what feels right at the moment with no long-range sense of direction. And for these people, eternity is not in view. What are some common spiritual eye problems. There could be a number of them. I'd like to mention two of them. One of them is that of foggy vision, where you just simply cannot see clearly. And foggy vision is often occurred or is often uh, caused by nearsightedness. Nearsightedness is a problem that I deal with. If I took my glasses off, most of you I couldn't recognize. A lot of you I wouldn't even know if you're laughing or crying because my eyes cannot focus the light that is coming from a distance. And spiritually speaking, I think we all have this problem to a greater or lesser degree. When something is too far ahead of us, it's just pretty hard for us to focus on that. It's pretty easy to focus on what's right in front of us, what we see right ahead of us. We're born with that problem. That's why we tend to lay up treasures here on earth instead of treasures in heaven. But just like I need corrective lenses to give me a clear view of what's out ahead of me, 
in our Christian life, we need corrective lenses. And God gives us a, a variety of corrective lenses. One of those is his word. Matthew 6 is a corrective lens through which we need to look to get a clear focus on what's ahead. God gives us his spirit as a corrective lens. It helps to guide our thinking and to convict us when our focus is wrong and help us to focus. He gives us godly counsel. And as we apply these lenses, our vision begins to improve. It may not be perfect. Probably none of us have perfect spiritual vision, perfect long-range distance vision. We still see through a glass darkly, as it were. But these lenses can help to improve our vision. So foggy vision is an issue. Another issue is double vision, where we just see, see double. The view of anything else blurs our vision of God. We can read about double vision, I think, in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus talks about the sower that went out to spread his seed. And you're familiar with the account. Some of the seed fell by the wayside. The birds came and gathered that seed up, ate it, took it away. Nothing grew. Total failure. There was other seed that fell in rocky soil. Thin soil. There was a little bit of soil there. It took root. It sprouted. But it was not enough soil to support it. When the sun came out, that plant dried up and died. Again, total failure. Nothing grew. But there was some soil that grew in thorny ground. The birds didn't carry it away. There was sufficient soil there to grow. And these plants grew. But there was a problem. There were other plants there, the thorns that were growing up among them and were choking them out. The plants were growing, but because they were choked out, they failed to yield fruit. They bore no fruit. And I find this area the most troublesome for my life. And perhaps more of us here do as well. Because we think that as long as we're growing, as long as we're staying green, things are fine. The question is, are we bearing fruit? No fruit means no value. No fruit means a total failure. And in this world, the competition for our attention is just pretty great. Spiritually speaking, double vision is a serious problem. Now, you might look at this outline and say, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, it's an inconvenience, but I can still see what it says. So it's no big deal. But the problem is when you have double vision spiritually, you're not looking at two images of the same thing like you're here. You're seeing different things. When you have double vision spiritually, you're trying, hopefully, to keep your eyes on the treasures in heaven. But at the same time, you're seeing earthly treasures. And you see the double vision the one tends to obliterate the other. And you totally lose your focus on the treasures in heaven. Jesus said that when you have spiritual double vision, your whole body is full of darkness and confusion. If therefore the light that is in thee be confused, how great is that confusion? Now, we could talk about many things that give us double vision. That could be an outline for an entire sermon. And I, I was thinking of a number of things to include in this, and I basically needed to keep moving on. But anything that tends to hide or conceal or blur or dim our view of eternal values gives us double vision. And I'm just going to take time to, to mention one issue here that I think we need to give some attention to. And that is the issue of political involvement. If we think that we can solve the world's problems politically or through a political individual, we are losing sight of what God wants us to focus on. 
You see, a political emphasis is directly opposed to the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. This is a heavenly kingdom with heavenly values, directly in the face of political involvement. And when we put our trust and set our eyes on a certain individual as the answer, we're taking them off Jesus. Jesus is the one that has the answers. Now, we have our opinions about what is right and wrong and what is good and bad, but we need to focus our perspective on God. The Bible teaches in numerous places that our responsibility is to respect and to honor and to pray for our leaders. Paul wrote that numerous times, and consider who the leaders of his day were in the Roman Empire. Not ones that we would tend to have a lot of respect for, but his teaching was, we need to respect those. So really, I don't want to hear a negative word about any of our leaders from anyone in this church until you have spent time on your knees praying for that individual. If we would spend as much time talking to God about some of our leaders as what we do talking to each other about them, we might be surprised at what God could do in that person's life. And I think that is where our focus needs to be. Take that as a challenge. Recently, I read a letter to the editor of the Lancaster newspapers, which I'm going to share with you. I think this should be a little bit of a wake-up call for us. The letter says, Reading Lancaster newspaper and looking at the photographs of President Donald Trump's visit to Lancaster Airport, I was puzzled by the apparent endorsement of Trump by some members of the Amish community. As a peace church, should they be endorsing someone who is the commander-in-chief of the military? And that, by the way, is double vision. If the president sends people into war, will those same Amish men in the picture be among them? He goes on to say, also, having relatives who have visited from out of state, we would tell them not to photograph the Amish, as many of them prefer not to have their picture taken. But there were those young men at the rally, Amish young men, seemingly mugging for the camera. He says, I hope this letter starts a conversation in the Amish community. It should. Well, I think it's pretty sad when people in the community around us need to be the ones to remind us of who we are. When they are the ones that need to point out where we are losing our clarity of vision, when we send a message like this to the community, really we're telling them that our vision is no longer range than what your vision is. Now, I understand that many of the Amish communities may lack teaching on the two-kingdom concept and what it means, how it applies to our lives, what it means to be a loyal citizen, but these issues are creeping into our circles as well, and I say, God help us to clarify our vision. As we think of this issue of double vision, I mentioned that if we have foggy vision, sometimes corrective lenses can help. If we have double vision, we may need surgery. Sometimes people need eye surgery to correct a problem that they have. And perhaps there is something that God needs to cut out of our lives. If this is a problem that you deal with, since this is a problem that we deal with, we all deal with it, we need to ask God to examine our lives and to perform, to perform that surgery, to cut out those things that need to be removed. Let's move on to the third question. What is essential? How do we see the essential? And who is essential? Verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus addressed what is essential. He moved on to how we see the essential. Now he is coming to the bottom line. Who is essential in your life? Who is important to you? And he says it very clearly. No man can serve two masters. The song that we sang just before the sermon here led into this very well. 
If you sang that song, you made a commitment. I have decided to follow Jesus. He is the one that is essential to me. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You need to make this decision. You will hate the one and love the other, or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. And if you have double vision, you cannot focus clearly on the goals of two different masters. You will find yourselves concentrating on one or the other and being confused. Years ago, I used to uh, enjoy a dog we had at, uh, in our family at that time. And like many dogs, you would toss it a piece of food and it would catch it out of the air. And sometimes I would take two pieces of food and toss them both at the same time. Well, the dog would be confused. He'd see the one and then he'd see the other. And of course, he ended up missing them both. And that's what happens if our vision isn't clear. We miss them both. Jesus is saying, who will you serve? You cannot serve God and mammon. And that brings us to the question, what is mammon? We often tend to think of it as money. But I think it's a lot more than that. Money may be included, but there's much more involved. I think a one, if you want a one-word translation for it, I think the, a better word than money would simply be greed. Because greed is not limited only to money. Greed extends to many areas of life. It can extend to personal fame, greedy for fame, acquisition of many things. And in the old times, this word mammon was actually associated with the name of a demon, the demon of greed. Now, obviously, we know that we cannot serve God and the devil. Jesus is narrowing this down. He's not just talking about the devil in general, but he's narrowing it down to one sphere of, devil's, of the devil's temptation, and that is greed. And he's saying, if you are controlled by greed, you will not be able to serve me loyally. And one source that I read uh, commenting on this word said that mammon is a demon who, according to Christian theology, embodies one of the cardinal sins, greed. This demon's monstrous greed is so powerful that innocent men can be sucked into it and corrupted so that they too focus their attention on building up worldly treasure instead of virtues they can carry with them into the kingdom of heaven. So I look at mammon simply as the God of greed. And Jesus is saying, you cannot serve me and the God of greed. And again, the devotional, which we read this morning, made this, the statement, covetousness, which is idolatry. We recognize idolatry as that which takes the place of God. And the passage in Colossians 3 that Joseph read specifically said that covetousness is idolatry. It takes the place of God. Jesus is saying, ye cannot serve God and mammon. So it can be greed of almost anything, just like I said. The Amplified Bible in this verse says, ye cannot serve God and mammon, which is money, possessions, fame, status, or whatever is valued more than the Lord. So Jesus is laying down the principles for the citizens of his kingdom, and he's making it very clear. Now, when we talk about citizenship, sometimes on this earth we talk about a person that has dual citizenship. It doesn't happen very often. But typically, if you are a citizen of one country, and for some reason you want to become a citizen of another country, in many cases you will need to renounce your original citizenship in order to obtain your other citizenship. And the reason for that is because this country wants to be sure that you're going to be loyal to them, that you're not coming in as someone with priorities for your former country, but your priorities will focus on them. And while we talk about the two-kingdom concept, we're citizens of this world, excuse me, we're residents of this world, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, I think what Jesus is really saying here is that I'm not interested in having dual citizenship for anyone in my kingdom. Either you're in or you're out. 
You are for me or you're against me. You're laying up treasures in heaven or you're laying up treasures on earth. Your vision is clear or your vision is marred. You love me or you despise me. It's the cross or it's conformity to the world. So that brings us to the question, where is your allegiance? And this is a question that you will need to answer for yourself. Throughout much of history, this question came with a pretty high price tag for many people throughout history. If they were going to be loyal to Jesus Christ, it cost them a lot. Many times, they needed to be willing to give up their lives entirely. They needed to be willing to die. And because of the high price tag that was attached to being loyal to Jesus Christ, there was no question if you were in or if you were out. To be a disciple of Jesus was serious business. Men and women would be called before the courts. Many times they were given the opportunity. If you deny the name of Jesus, you're a free man. If you do not deny the name of Jesus, you're a dead man. It was that simple. They had a choice, and it was clear. But today, for many of us, those lines are getting a little bit blurry. Because for many, following Jesus is simply a matter of convenience. We don't give it much thought. It doesn't take a lot of commitment. We don't take it very seriously. We think we can live the lives that appeal to us and be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is calling for commitment. Are you going to love me or are you going to love the world? A few minutes ago, I read a letter to the editor that, uh, which, uh, in which a member of our community seemed to have a better understanding of what it means than some of our own people do. I think I'm going to take time to read a couple more letters. This is from the book, True Discipleship, which I've had for probably 20 or 30 years or more. Gives a number of illustrations here. One of the letters in this book was written by a young American college student who became enthralled with the ideas of communism. This young college student was engaged to be married, and he wrote a letter to his fiancée explaining why he was going to need to break that engagement because of his commitment to communism. I'm going to read that letter. It might get a little bit tedious, but as I read it, Think about which is a higher cause, a commitment to communism or a commitment to Jesus Christ? And am I willing to go to the extent that this young man was in his commitment? We communists, he says, have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. Some of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. Now, obviously, this was written back during the time of the Cold War. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard, where our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something true and better for mankind in his perspective. There is one thing in which I am dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, 
my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens, as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. That was a communist. Would we as a Christian be able to write the same letter? Where is my allegiance? I'm going to read another letter. This one was written by an atheist. It was an article that he wrote and published. He says, if I firmly believed, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, then religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences would never stay my hand or seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season, and my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That was written by an atheist. Is Jesus central in your life? Where's your allegiance? Is your allegiance to him and to him alone? A couple years ago, our youth course in their program sang the song, I Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. I'd like to use that song for a closing prayer at the end of the sermon. I've asked Jordan to come forward. You may come up, Jordan. I'd like you to stand, and I'm going to project the course of that song on the board. And if you're serious about this, I'd like you to sing that with us. Now, the verses are less familiar to us. The verses are written in blue. When we get to the verse, I'll simply read that to you. But every time we get to a course, if this is your desire, I'd like you to sing it with us. Go ahead, Jordan. I've heard how Christians long ago were brought before a tyrant's throne. They were told that he would spare their lives if they would renounce the name of Christ. But one by one, they chose to die. The Son of God, they would not deny. Like a great angelic choir sings, I can almost hear their voices ring. I pledge allegiance Now the years have come and the years have gone, but the cause of Jesus still goes on. Now our time has come to count the cost, to reject this world, to embrace the cross, 
And one by one, let us live our lives for the one who died to give us life. Till the trumpet sounds on the final day, let us boldly stand and gladly say, I pledge allegiance to To the Lamb of God who bore my pain, who took my place, who wore my shame, I will seek to honor his commands. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb. I pledge allegiance to Thank you. You may be seated.